and welcome to episode 27 of Girls Gone Canon, Sansa Stark in a Clash of Kings, chapter 7. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Liza Narber on Twitter and on Tumblr. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana. You can find me as Glass Table Girl on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit and the Maester Monthly podcast and as Arithmetric on Twitter. Guys, we did it. We did it. It's our 267 of the Blackwater. <laughs> it's my favorite. I can't believe you're letting me do this, Eliana. I'm, I'm letting you do 1,000 hours. Literally, Eliana, like, got up the other day and she was, Chloe, I am going to let you have this episode. We were not going to do Sansa 7 in A Clash of Kings. You know, Chloe just really seems to love it. Yeah, we were going to skip over it. We were like, whatever, this isn't important. (laughs) Nothing happens in this chapter. Nothing. But you guys, this is such a big chapter. This is the, (laughs) this is like the penultimate Sansa chapter of A Clash of Kings. This is, it's all building up. The war, the smoke, the fire, the flames, the... Sandor, the Sandor, the Sandor, the Sandor. It all builds up to this chapter, and it's so, so good. There's such... I got a little emotional today. I was reading it at work, and I was sitting at my desk, and I got a little tear in my eye. I was like, mm, my babies, all of my babies. Guys, Chloe's actually waving her <laughs> arms in the air and fist-pumping as she describes how jazzed she is for this chapter. <laughs> I love this. This is my favorite Clash of Kings chapter. What would yours be? I think mine would actually be the one where Catelyn treats with Renly and Stannis. What? It's not Sansa 7? <laughs> it's not Sansa 7. You can read A Clash of Kings and not have Sansa 7 be your favorite? I don't believe you. Yes. I don't, I don't believe you. That or there's also the House of the Undying. How do you not like the House of the Undying? Oh, I forgot about her and that. Who? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited for this episode, for this chapter. We are once more only doing one chapter for this episode. We're going to keep it good, tight. We're going to keep this tight. We're going to, we got a lot to talk about in this episode, so. But not too tight because we wanted to fill the hour and also because we're doing a thousand hours. Yeah, we're literally starting and then it's going to go to a thousand hours. So, no, we are doing one chapter. We'll see how long we run. But we do have some housekeeping per usual. We have some emails and tweets of note and different other things. First up on that roster, guys, we're not going to be selling our Bellwas stickers to the public, at least not yet. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon, though. Thank you to people who are interested. Yeah, it, it was very special for patrons only that signed up before we started And I understand if you weren't in a financial situation to deal with that, or if you hadn't heard of us then, uh, it doesn't mean that these won't come back someday as maybe like a special purchase or something, but there are definitely going to be other opportunities for really cool merch in the future. And honestly, I kind of am hoping for like four years from now when we're like, you know, finishing up for someone to be all... Look at my Bellas deserve better sticker. You know, real classic, real traditional. We can't just go selling these to everyone yet. You know what yeah. I mean? There will be other art that we make Aliana do. I promise. <laughs> like this Sansa picture I've been meaning to finish. Yeah, like that. I don't know, you guys. We're going to make a lot of things because we want to have fun with this. And basically, we've just decided that this is going to be the thing that we use to do whatever the hell we want. It's our podcast. We're going to make friendship bracelets maybe i don't know that was an idea we threw out there i saw someone mentioned to a different podcast but i was like i like that idea i was like "Ooh, beer koozies <laughs> i don't know if we're gonna do that i'm just saying there will be physical things that you can own at some point yes if you want girls gone canon swag totally suggest some to us we will start creating more ideas and more things maybe we'll maybe we'll sell some swag we don't know Maybe we'll sell cats for you to put your sticker on if you already own a sticker. Yeah, if you don't have a cat for your Bellwas to be on, then we'll see what we can do. And that brings us to another uh, thing that one of our lovely friends on the interwebs sent to us. Shakespeare of Thrones on Twitter sent us a bunch of lovely words and lovely ideas. It says, hello, ladies. Just wanted to slide into your DMs and let you know I'm really (laughs) enjoying your ACOG. Sansa episode slang into our DMs and talking about our ACOC. Damn, dude. Uh, Damn. <laughs> I'm kind of into Shakespeare of Thrones too, though. So yeah, I know. Call me, babe. Call me. Oh, 
by the way, while we're here, Shakespeare of Thrones uh, did a great episode with Joe Magician and San Rixian um, a few weeks ago about witches and how they manifest in A Song of Ice and Fire. So if you haven't checked that out, definitely do. It is still witchy season because every day is Halloween, as we like to say. Anyways, Shakespeare <laughs> of Thrones says, Your cast keeps getting better and better, but gosh, it really is horrifying how obsessed people are with this poor... 12-year-old girl having her period. Leave Sansa and her pussy alone. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad it's that's to the point on. where I'm... I know. It's to the point where I'm almost like, geez, George. But then I'm sure Martin is doing this as a parallel to the princess coming of age and the initiation trope in fairy tales. There's a lot of menstruation imagery in fairy tales, even if it isn't explicitly talked about. Think of Sleeping Beauty pricking her finger on the spindle, Snow White eating the blood-red apple. And this is the climax of their adventure and nightmare, and also their initiation into womanhood. Likewise, menstruation is the same for Sansa, and I love how it's referred to as a flower blooming to sound pretty and fairy tale like, but of course it's not. Even the characters say it ironically. Sansa's life isn't the fairy tale she imagined, but perhaps that's only because there's less magic and the monsters are more real than she ever thought they would be. Also, love that you called out the stabbing menstrual pains. I remember reading that for the first time and being like, hmm, not quite. Yeah, it's not like it doesn't hurt. Like, I'm not, when I say that, I wasn't saying it doesn't hurt. I'm just saying that it's not as much stabbing as it is somebody taking a meat grinder and just grinding your ovaries with them, right? It's like somebody's taking, like, yeah. like a, a... Just, like, squeezing. Something's, like, in there, like, just uh, squeezing like and then, like, pushing all of the things. Yeah. It's, like, it's not It's just great. the worst discomfort in the whole and world. And pinching, maybe like a lot of pinching. It's not. It's not like a stab. It it's like a. It's like somebody's taking a screwdriver, and they shove the head of it. Or no, no, no. Worse, they shove the other side, the the not head, the not sharp side. They somehow shove the, the butt. butt of a screwdriver into your stomach and then start twisting, and like that's a lot of force to get that in there. You know what I mean? So, anyways, I digress. Yeah. We won't go off on this, but yeah, it sucks. So George. If you ever decide to get a womb, womb, there it is. Yeah. Uh, don't. God. Anyways, I do love uh, Sansa is obviously she's our princess character, right? She is our maiden in the tower. That's our point of view to the extreme. Her and we also obviously get that in Ariane, as we have discussed. And I love this because her fairy tales are huge for Sansa. We get that in the Eerie in A Storm of Swords when she loses her shoe as Liza dangles her out of the moon door. It's the lost princess losing her shoe. The clock striking midnight when the bells toll in a, game, in a Game of Thrones and at the Purple Wedding and even here in the Blackwater. And of course in A Storm of Swords. And of course in A Storm of Swords, Cersei plays that twisted fairy godmother role for Sansa in her wedding to Tyrion. She brings this beautiful dress, this magical dress, all to turn Sansa's life into a pumpkin worse than it was. Absolutely. I think these are really great things to point out. And, I mean, it is perfect in Sansa's storyline, especially as we're deconstructing all of these different fairy tales and getting us as the reader to question, like, damn, what did I internalize growing up? So We did get a really great Thanks. podcast review, which I don't care about, obviously, as we've discussed, but Eliana does. So I will read that for you. Actually, this is great. <laughs> this is a really good one. I'm gonna it has honest. a fantastic title. The Best A Song of Ice and Fire Podcast to Get High To by Salty Samurai. This is a, an awesome That's honor. Honestly, it's the only honor. It's the highest of honors. It is as high as honor. Oh. And Salty Samurai said... A Song of Ice and Fire is, at its core, about the characters, and so is this podcast. Chloe and Eliana have the talent to pick apart A Song of Ice and Fire theory in a coherent, thoughtful way without having to be total nerds about it. Excuse me, I resemble that remark. They have the correct takes on all the characters, so if your journey through the fandom has left you confused as to who deserves praise and who should be mercilessly and repeatedly dunked on, this is the podcast for you. I love this. Hey, but I don't know. Do we are we not total nerds? I think about we're very nerdy. I mean, I guess we're cool. Yeah. Are are we cool? 
I don't know. I like that when we first got this, when we first saw this review and I told Chloe about it, I was like, is this like us? Are we like Helga Pataki punching Brainy? Yeah. In yeah, the face? we are. We are. Also, I guess a lot of our viewership is more modern culture. And I think maybe it's because we make a lot of modern pop culture references. Maybe? I don't know. I'm just spitballing. I don't know. Are we cool? Are they saying that we are, are hip? Are we hip? The youths? Hello, I mean, fellow I, youths. Yeah, I say lit. I say bops. I ask the my focus group of one teenager every now and then. I'm like, do you know who the Spice Girls are? Because I just want to know what the kids know. Also, it's like when they don't know the Spice Girls or who they were, when they don't know that anymore, we're over. Anyways, so back to our baby Spice. Sansa Stark. She is a baby Spice. She is. Okay, but first we have to get away from Sansa Stark for a quick second in our very, very, very fast lightning round. Ours is the Fury lightning round. Uh, Tyrion, 14. Can you lead us in, Eliana? Yes, I can. Speaking of leading, as if dealing with the surprise force of men invading on the west of King's Landing, Tyrion faces betrayal at the Sword of Mandon Moor. Of Mandy Moore? Offering Tyrion his hand, and Mandon slices off part of Tyrion's nose. Podrick Payne saves Tyrion's life, shoving more into the river. Yeah, Podrick. Yeah, Podrick. Get it, Podrick. Also our baby boy. In Sansa Stark 7, when the queen gives up hope and abandons her people, Sansa, a younger and more beautiful queen, steps up to the dais to bring them calm before running back to the bedchamber herself. It seems that a lost puppy, though, has also found his way there. And so that brings us to Sansa Stark 7. Lancel arrives in Magor's holdfast, telling Cersei that the battle is lost, and Cersei's like, go tell Tyrion. Lancel, though, is bleeding, and he tells Cersei that he thinks Tyrion might be dead. I mean, first-time readers, maybe same. I love that there's, like, both of those things going on. Mm -hmm. The battle wasn't lost, and Tyrion wasn't dead. Tyrion was on the bridge of boats as it broke. He thinks Mandon is likely dead as well, and also... Remember the Hound, he's gone. Of course, we know what actually happened from the other side of the battle, and even in our overview. Mandon almost murders Tyrion, but for Podrick Payne, and very soon we'll find where Sandor Clegane went. Lancel says that Cersei, having pulled Joffrey out of the battle and back into the castle walls, is what broke the army's morale. If you'll remember, this happens. Like, Cersei gives that order the previous Sansa chapter. We don't see it happen on page. And then all the troops lost heart because they saw that the king left. Yeah, Joffrey really isn't cut out for upper management, is he? Like, first rule of management, you don't ever make your team do something you wouldn't be willing to get in there and do as well. That's a sign of a good leader. Inspire by leading, lead by inspiring, right? Mm -hmm. We actually get to see this in Tyrion's battle speech in the last chapter and in Barristan's in the Winds of Winter before the Battle of Fire. It poses kind of this interesting question of men being born into leadership and men acquiring leadership through the hard way. Tyrion was born into a family where he should be a leader, but his actual birth kind of stunted that idea of him being a warrior. He had to earn it, which of course he does get this job through privilege tossed at him by Tywin, but he does prove himself through it. We see this through John, through Stannis starving in Storm's End and being just and righteous. We even hear the idea of what makes a good leader and warrior from Sansa, who has the biggest standards in A Song of Ice and Fire, about her brother, Rob, who leads the vanguard. Rob's going to come back. We're going to talk about him again later. <laughs> Hundreds of gold cloaks quit. They're like, well, shit. If our VP's resigning... Actually, he's the president, you know? If our the president of our company is leaving, I'm going to leave too. This startup is obviously going to shit to bring back Chloe's, Chloe's metaphor from last time. You know, I'm having a really interesting time with my new job. Can any of you tell? Because it's really shown the last two podcasts, hasn't it? Like, all I've been doing is making work metaphors. There are corpses and flames up and down the coast. One of the seven million kettle blacks comes in. It's Osni, by the way. And he says, it's a shit show out there. There's fighting on both sides of the river. It looks like it's Stannis's men are fighting themselves on the shore. And they're not, but we'll get to that. Bell and Swan has pushed out. Sandor can't be found. Mobs and deserters and riots are shooting off. 
People trying to get out, people trying to get in, men are ramming the gate down. Gods be good, Sansa thought. It is happening. Joffrey's lost his head and so have I. She looked for Sir Illyn, but the king's justice was not to be seen. I can feel him, though. He's close. I'll not escape him. He'll have my head. Sansa's pretty much succumbed to her fate at this point, right? Like, she just thinks, it's over. It's curtains for us. I mean, in her defense, everyone else thinks that, too. Like, Cersei thinks that, too, which is why she tells Osfried, raise the bridge. We're not letting anyone in or out of Magor's. Yeah, buy us a few more moments, right? Mm-hmm. And Osreed's like, wait, but what about all these other women who went to go pray in the set? And Cersei's just like, fuck that. Fuck those bitches. <laughs> Cersei's like, guess they should have stayed here, right? <laughs> but I'm also just like, I mean, was that the best choice seeing now what Sansa thinks? Like, were they that much ser- safer with Cersei? If I'm going down, I'm taking everyone with me Lannister? Like, no. There were no good choices. Cersei then is all, what the fuck? Where the fuck is Joffrey? And Joffrey, of course, is at the castle gatehouse, bossing around the crossbowmen. Below him, crowds are howling at him. Because he's dumb, and he's a duty head, and people throw their poops at him, and he deserves it. And he sucks. Joffrey sucks. I just love that one scene, the bad lip reading of medieval funtime world land. He's like, who threw their poops on me? <laughs> I do love medieval funtime land. I don't even like know the title exactly. I just mix the words up and throw them out there Same. and say, this is fine. Cersei commands the soldiers to bring the king fucking back inside Magor's and Lancel doesn't want her to. But Cersei's like, oh, he's my son. And then she reminds Lancel like, you should want it to survive. He's Lannister blood, just like you. Which, of course, funnily enough, Lancel would do anything to get rid of this blood as of a feast for crows. In a way, Lancel goes through his own transformation from trauma as kind of like Reek. I am excited to get into that when we do Jamie and Cersei and Tyrion. And we end up seeing most of Lancel initially from Tyrion's point of view, where like Lancel acts kind of shitty to Tyrion. But I find Lancel... To actually be a really great and interesting character. Like, everyone, this is a war. And it is Lancel, who's the f- who first comes off as, like, this spineless boy who's, like, super shitty and snooty and doesn't know shit. And he's the one who's willing to stand up and say what everyone else is thinking, but they're too afraid to say that Joffrey really needs to be out there. He needs to be on the battlefield. He's the king. He's their leader. Like, this is important for morale that people see the king out there so that they don't think that the battle is lost. Because turns out, guess what, Joffrey? The beatings will not improve morale. He has that kind of boyish charm that Theon had, right? When you first meet him, that you just want to smack him. He talks back. He's a smart ass. He's and a 16-year-old boy. That's literally yeah. what 16-year-old boys are like. When I was 16, I was a smart ass. I'm still a smart ass. Yeah, that's true. And I thought I knew everything. And turns out I didn't. I, I do. I'm just kidding. I really don't. Well, you didn't. Maybe you do now. But did you at 16? No, absolutely. I've told my mom that she was right so many times now, and I just want to die about it. No, my mom was so wrong. (laughs) But some things she was super right about. Yeah, some things. That's true. Lancel argues that if the castle's taken, Joffrey is going to die anyway. Cersei pushes her palm into Lancel's open wound that he has and leaves as he's almost fainting, which that's kind of fucked up. Like, Cersei... Insult to injury, salt to wound, literally hand to the wound. She was intending pain. She was straight up, Cersei wanted to cause Mm -hmm. Lancel pain. Sansa realizes that Cersei has forgotten her, and Cersei's not going to care if Sir Ill Pain comes for Sansa, because turns out being drunk means you don't give a shit about everyone else around you. I mean, yes. The amount of Ill Pain in Sansa's chapters is really standing out this read-through. Like, Oh, yeah. I'm just floored. There... There's not going to be a huge payoff, I don't think, for it, but it's just very prominent. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Or if it's just emblematic of the trauma. I don't know. Sansa's train of thought, though, is broken by the fearful walls of the people who worry that the battle is lost. There's children crying inside of the walls, and Sansa realizes that, oh, the children can smell fear. She never knew why she got to her feet, but she did. Don't be afraid, she told them loudly. The queen has raised the drawbridge. This is the safest place in the city. There's thick walls, the moat, the spikes. Queen. 
Yeah, absolute queen. And first off, she's right. You know, this is technically the safest area in the city right now. They are in the safest place. They're barricaded in. No one in, no one out. And good queen Sansa, though, first of her name, second of her name, first queen of her name, second Sansa of her name. And of course, like we mentioned last episode, this harkens right back to that idea of the woman's court that Queen Alison keeps, according mm-hmm. to George. After seeing Joffrey do the exact opposite when he flees from battle and seeing Cersei do it as well, Sansa does her duty. She does what she thinks is right as a queen right after she decides that if she was a queen someday, she would make them love her. Exactly. She does the exact thing that Cersei says, like in the previous chapter, that people are going to say of whatever Cersei did that she didn't fucking do on this night, you know, being queenly. They're not going to remember Cersei. It wasn't Cersei who did that. It was Sansa. Exactly. People are demanding news from the outside because their loved ones and family are, of course, in the battle. And Sansa gives a courteous non-answer about how Joffrey is back and he's unhurt. She lies that the queen will be back soon, so they don't think Cersei abandoned them. And she commands Moonboy to entertain them and make them laugh. Amidst this, in walks Lancel Lannister, man of the hour, more injured than he was before. She moves to Lancel's side and speaks with him and comforts him. Lancel's bleeding, he's hurt, he's traumatized, and Sansa, again, takes command and orders guards to bring a maester to Lancel, which, as we know, we've discussed him before in the last couple episodes, it's Maester Franken. Sansa berates herself for being too soft and stupid because she's caring for Lancel. She's not soft and stupid, she's just very caring. She's empathetic, as we see throughout this whole chapter. This injury that we see here, it's one of those things that breaks Lancel. And like, as you pointed out, Chloe, he undergoes a transformation. And yeah, Lancel seemed like a shitty of jump teenager, which a lot of them do initially. But that doesn't mean he deserves like what he went through. Like, I'm just gonna say controversial things here. Get uncomfortable. Like, Cersei's 32 years old, right? And she seduces her, she seduces her 16-year-old cousin. And that's pretty rapey. She's like, a, she abuses her power and her age on like this impressionable boy. And she does this. She abuses her power later on with Tana Merriweather. Like, that's a really weird gray moment. I think that this is part of, to an extent, what leads him to becoming a broken man along with the things that happen in the battle. And it's very much like another character who appears later in this chapter when they join a religious order. And another holy man in this in A Song of Ice and Fire, who also has that backstory of being sexually abused as a child before finding his god, Aaron Greyjoy. Yeah. Cersei has not returned, and the torches have started to burn out with no one there to replace them. Santos tells Sansa to lock herself in her bedchamber and that he'll meet her there, which like, bros, don't. Please don't. don't please don't come Thinks I hate it. <laughs> She wonders if it will be Dantos that comes for her or Sir Illyn Payne. And we, of course, know it's neither. She goes there and finds Sandor. She wonders for a moment if she should ask Dantos to defend her. He had been a knight, too, trained with the sword and sworn to defend the weak. No, he has not the courage or the skill. I would only be killing him as well. It's very subtle, I think, because this is just like that one line in there. But it's a big indication, I think, of how much Sansa's character has changed since game. It's often pointed out by people like how much Sansa might be making the situation with Dantos more palatable because she's still seeing it through the lens of the songs of Florian and Jonquil. But I, that's more of, I think, a comfort because like we see she's like constantly like, fuck. She, she straight up says it to Dantos' face like, fuck, the gods gave me you. And yet I'm still here in King's Landing. And I think it's more of just like a thing she tells herself that she, as a way to comfort herself, because she needs some sort of hope because, I mean, it's Danto stuff. And Danto, as she often points out, is it's all she's got. And the idea of what true knighthood is begins to be dismantled here. Like Sansa recognizes that, yes, Dantos used to be a knight, but it turns out not all the knights are strong and able to defend the weak. So she's here and learning that idea that all knights are heroes and acknowledges that you know her she can't ask dantos to defend her he's too unskilled he's gonna fucking die which that's something that even grown adults in this world don't pay attention to in a song of ice and fire right 
they choose their random, you know, their trial by combat person and they don't even blink an eye at these thoughts. And Sans is already looking at it very analytically thinking, oh no, Dantos would just die. And <laughs> going back to what you said, yeah, Sansa is absolutely repressing and displacing some of these emotions because she has to like kiss this fat drunk old guy uh, who says he's going to yeah. get her home and never does. And she knows this to an extent, but she's just like, fuck, guy's a loser. Such a loser. <laughs> Sansa holds her composure until she gets to the steps after she leaves the ballroom. She wants to run, but she knows running isn't very queenly, so she waits until she can get to the stairs, where she spirals up them and knocks into a guard who is escaping with gold and jewels and all the good stuff wrapped up in his Lannister cloak. Which is just another example of failed knighthood in this chapter. It's scattered all over, absolutely. It's all over. Her chambers are dark, and outside it's real bright. The southern sky was a swirl with glowing shifting colors the reflections of the great fires that burned below baleful green tides moved against the bellies of the clouds and pools of orange light spread out across the heavens the reds and yellows of common flame warred against the emeralds and jades of wildfire each color flaring and then fading birthing armies of short-lived shadows to die again an instant later green dawns gave way to orange dusks in half a heartbeat the air itself smelled burnt, the way a soup kettle sometimes smelled if it was left on the fire too long and all the soup boiled away. Embers drifted through the night like swarms of fireflies. Sleep, she told herself, and when I wake it will be a new day and the sky will be blue again. The fighting will be done and someone will tell me whether I'm to live or die. Lady, she whimpered softly, wondering if she would meet her wolf again when she was dead. Mm, my baby girl. No. There is a really interesting nod here, and there's a lot of it if you read the imagery in the Tyrion chapters, the Sansa chapters, and the Davos chapters here during the Blackwater. It, it just reminds me of that line from Arienne in The Winds of Winter, the very air was green. Uh, it's such mm. for that, that shit's gonna blow, dude. It's gonna blow. Oh, I just thought it was interesting, this line where it just says, birthing armies of short-lived shadows, which, of course, this is the battle against Stannis, who, through her lore, mm -hmm. has, you know, fucked a few babies out of Melisandre, you know, shadow babies, short-lived shadows. A few short-lived shadows. That died yeah. again an instant later, after their kill. And they happen in this book. Yeah, so I think it's great I think great that's language. a really great catch. Thanks. You found something and called something out that definitely fits in. I mean... If it's within the same book, you know, some sort of some some sort of poetry. Yeah, it's almost like George is a great writer. It's almost. I don't want to go that far, but <laughs> <laughs> who would read these books? Something stirs behind Sansa, and it's not just something; it's someone. It's my husband, my my husband, Sandor Doggo Clegane. I love him. Woof woof. And is it a coincidence, Chloe, that your husband appears? When Sansa calls for her wolf. I, I think not. I think not. Of course not. Of course not. In the words of George R. R. Martin, there's something there, which is also one of the tracks from Beauty and the Beast. So keep up. Uh, do, 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 do. I also still just want to yell back, get her a dog. She'll be happier for it, said Robert. Uh, but really, no, by chance, I love all the theorizing that with Sansa's powers as a Stark child, she definitely has the old gods on her side, and she has some extra supernatural senses, just like her siblings. George has confirmed all of the Stark kids have powers. Of course, by Sansa losing her wolf so early on, she never gets the chance to really process these skills and learn them. I wrote a theory a really long time ago that I deleted, I'm pretty sure, thank God. Uh, it was like my first theory five years ago or so, so just knock that bitch out of the internet. I hope no one ever read it. That's how I feel about my Zanga. Sansa in this theory, right, you got me. Like, I just, I can't believe I read the books like that once. I was an idiot. Uh, <laughs> Sansa, this theory basically revolves around the idea of Sansa skin-changing Sandor during Blackwater. So, well, I guess he's a dog, so it could be Ward. Uh, during the battle and it chills him the fuck out in her room, which I don't think it's true. And I don't really think we'll see Sansa doing much more than maybe having very symbolic dreams or intuitive moments with her powers. And I think that Lady Dying definitely put the sword in that one, you know, uh, <laughs> ouch. But 
It's interesting to consider and to think about. <laughs> I'm just like stuck on put the sword in that one. Thanks. It's very sad. It hurt. Why would you... <laughs> Sandor grabs her by the wrist and she almost poops out of shock. Sandor stops Sansa screaming by putting his hand over her face and his hands are sticky with blood and calloused. Yeah, there's blood. I know what it's like. Outside, a swirling lance of jade light spit at the stars, filling the room with green glare. She saw him for a moment, all black and green, the blood on his face dark as tar, his eyes glowing like a dog's in the sudden glare. And the light faded, and he was only a hulking darkness in a stained white cloak. It probably doesn't mean anything, but A, the imagery and use of light and stuff is great in this, but... B, you know, that color and imagery about, like, he's all black and green and how this is, like, the main colors in the black water. It doesn't mean anything, probably, but it is reminiscent to me of the factions from the Dance of the Dragons. I would love to read the Tyrion chapters alone to this to kind of look into that coloring again because it really does remind me of Illyrio's rings in mm. A Dance of Dragons Tyrion 1, right? Illyrio was reclining on a padded couch, gobbling hot peppers and pearl onions from a wooden bowl. His brow was dotted with beads of sweat, his pig's eyes shining above his fat cheeks. Jewels danced when he moved his hands. Onyx and opal, tiger's eye and tourmaline, ruby, amethyst, sapphire, emerald, jet and jade, a black diamond, a green pearl. I think that's just such a good imagery with the blacks and the greens. Obviously, Illyrio's involved, so we know it is about the Blackfires and the Targaryens. I'm pretty sure that like half of these were just like those last few were just variants of the crystal gems from Steven Universe. I was gonna say from Sailor Moon. Oh, I don't know. Ruby Amethyst like and Sapphire. Are there Zoyasite. Oh Jade. Oh my god. They were yeah. so sad. I Th those them. were some tragic. I like how you said I I would like to do a read of these Tyrion chapters alone. Like, we're not going to do that eventually. Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. We're on the character reread podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Holding a bottle of wine, Sandor threatens to kill Sansa if she screams and takes a swig of his wine, surprised that Sansa hasn't asked him who's winning yet. And Sansa complies, and then Sandor's like, I don't know. I don't know, dog. I don't actually know. He, <laughs> I just wanted to I just wanted you to ask. He laughs and says, All I know is who's lost, if that's me. Sansa asks him asks him what he's lost, and he says, Oh. Sansa has never seen him this drunk. He was sleeping in her bed, which is a little weird. Little some Goldilocks. Up, it's a it's a little Goldilocks ish. I'm yeah. gonna say it's Goldilocks since uh, we were talking about the fairy tales earlier. Yeah. And then Sandor says that he wants Tyrion dead. A, that bed was just right, is what I'm hearing. Uh, B, I think it was too small, probs. Especially because Tyrion made him go fight in the flames. Sandor is like, fuck that guy. And he's always felt that way. He's always felt like Tyrion looks down on him. In Sandor's death scene, which we're going to talk about later in A Storm of Swords, he shows a ton of disdain at Tyrion for marrying Sansa and for just existing, mostly. Sandor says, he's going. And Sansa repeats after him. She asks, where will you go? North, he says, anywhere, away from the fires. Sansa says, there's no way you'll get out, but... He says he has a white cloak that will get him anywhere. But of course, he does leave this cloak in just a few paragraphs. Okay, hot take. Kind of hot, not that hot. Sandor is doing that thing where it's like, you know, when you're really drunk and you like subconsciously leave an article of clothing at the place of like someone that you're kind of into. And I'm sorry, Chloe, it's like weird though, if because now I'm insinuating that he's like into Sansa, which I, he is, and it's weird. I mean, yeah, that's the point of the whole thing, Eliana. You leave the thing so that you have an excuse to go back to go get the thing later and be like, oh, I forgot my sweater here. And uh, can I stop by to go get it? Kind of. I think there's also all this symbolism, you know, like in real a, a swath life where like he leaves his cloak because he doesn't feel worthy of it and, you know, all that. But I mean, yes, also this. I thought you were going to talk about the other cloak thing, which we can touch on later. I think we should definitely touch on it later, for sure. Just touch. <laughs> but Sandor doesn't come back to King's Landing and doesn't come back for his cloak. I don't know if he's going to come back to King's Landing. I guess he does in the show. Whatever. Yeah, but who watches that? Why did you come here? 
You promised me a song, little bird. Have you forgotten? She didn't know what he meant. She couldn't sing for him now, here, with the sky a swirl with fire and men dying in their hundreds and their thousands. I can't, she said. Let me go. You're scaring me. Everything scares you. Look at me. Look at me. The blood masked the worst of his scars, but his eyes were white and wide and terrifying. The bird corner of his mouth twitched and twitched again. Sansa could smell him, a stink of sweat and sour wine and stale vomit, and over it all the reek of blood, blood, blood. I could keep you safe, he rasped. They're all afraid of me. No one would hurt you again, or I'd kill them. He yanked her closer, and for a moment she thought he meant to kiss her. He was too strong to fight. She closed her eyes, wanting it to be over, but nothing happened. Still can't bear to look, can you? She heard him say. He gave her arm a hard wrench, pulling her around and shoving her down onto the bed. I'll have that song, Florian and Jonquil, you said. His dagger was out, poised at her throat. Sing, little bird. Sing for your little life. I'm just like, I don't know, Sandor, maybe she like can't look at you because you're assaulting her and not because of your face. Like that's, I think, a thing you're projecting onto Sansa right now. And I'm just over here, you know, rocking the boat of my marriage. I'm feeling really attacked because it's not like I don't recognize the toxicity of it. I feel like <laughs> a lot of people don't get that it's not, I, I don't ship Sandor and Sansa now. There are some sweet moments and just some sweet protector nurturing moments that I love, but I ship it in like five years when Sansa's, you know, become a woman, gotten to hang out in the world and go, oh shit, this is what's up. And Sandor has, you know, gone to therapy on the quiet aisle. He's found peace. That's when I ship it. I ship the protection kind of thing. I don't ship it. I, guess. I don't know what the word is. I, I, whatever. Anyways, I digress. Like, literally, he you shows... Stan it? Stan it, yeah. He shows up like a crazed psycho, and she talks him off the ledge with her empathy. <sighs> with her empathy. And then he just, like, goes off and realizes what a fuck-up he is eventually. Not just realizes, but he admits he owns up to and wants to die about it. It's a whole arc. Have you even read these books, Eliana? <laughs> I don't know what happens in class, remember? What happens in this book? <laughs> no one knows. I also want to chat about the duality of Sandor. We see it in characters like Two-Face and Batman, really on the nose. Uh, Jekyll and Hyde, Beauty and the Beast. And George is obviously playing off of that with Sandor, the man behind the mask, the man behind the burns. Yeah, I mean, he is the Prince Zuko of the storyline. Don't look at me. In many ways. <laughs> I'm sorry, when he says look at me, I think of that scene in Futurama where Zoidberg's like, look at me, look at me, look at me, don't look at me. <laughs> He's like juggling things and I don't know, being Zoidberg. Also, if we want to go this far, I also made Emmett drunk watch Phantom of the Opera the other night with oh. me. And it's literally Phantom of the Opera. It's You're right, it is. You know, How have it's... I not seen that connection before? This is literally Phantom of the Opera. Because you don't do Sansan. That's true. And also, I guess I don't do enough fandom of the opera. I've It really is. With the sing singing of the songs. And anyways. And I like the toxicity and like, I'm going to take you with me in this little underground cavern. Anyways. Sansa's heart pumps in her ears and Sansa sings for Sandor, the only song she can think of in this moment, and Sansa sings Sandor, the song of mercy. This is such an important moment, right? That she can't think of a single song, all of her songs about Florian and Jonquil, the songs that he wanted her to sing. He, you know, playfully told her, I want you to sing me the song of your little Florian and Jonquil, you know, the knight and his woman, which... Okay, a little on the nose, Sandor. You're like, oh yeah, you're going to sing for me? You're going to sing for me the song of a knight taking his lady? Like, that's pretty much what he's saying. Like, sing to me about these knights and ladies that made love. And instead, she sings for him the only song she can think of, the religious song, asking the mother to pray for mercy for our warriors. The same song that just in the last chapter, you know, she thought and prayed for Sandor to. She prayed and let it gentle the rage inside him. And Sandra Clegane 
wanted that mother's love, right? That's that that's Aww. the love he's missing, that touch that was needed for him and he never got to have. How the adults in his life should have protected him, just like they should have protected Sansa. How instead they hid it under ointment and, and Gregor's cloak and Sandor's white cloak eventually. Sandor breaks in the battle, but we don't get to see his actual breaking. We only get to see the aftermath of it. We hear in Tyrion 13, he's afraid, Tyrion realized, shocked. The Hound is frightened. Everybody sees the Hound as this killing machine, right? This huge robot killing machine, Terminator, just out there to murder. Sandor is drunk, he's traumatized by the fire, and he drunkenly stumbles to the only place that's safe in the castle, Sansa's chamber. And while Sansa thinks, why did he come to my bed? There are several answers for that question. The first answer we can get from part of this chapter and part of Arya in Storm of Swords, Arya 13. He made a queer sound and it took her a moment to realize he was sobbing. And the little bird, your pretty sister, I stood there in my white cloak and let them beat her. I took the bloody song, she never gave it. I meant to take her too. I should have. I should have fucked her bloody and ripped her heart out before leaving her for that dwarf. A spasm of pain twisted his face. Do you mean to make me beg, bitch? Do it. The gift of mercy. So, while Sandor coaxes Arya to kill him, at the same time, he's sobbing. Where he wakes to Sansa, poised to kill, knife at the throat, he realizes he can't do it. He throws his knife down, which is what we see in the next passage. Sandor, who stood there in his white cloak and let them beat her, who tried to convince himself to fuck her bloody and show up at her room and tear her heart out, very, which I like to point to, the Huntsman in Snow White, right? This is very Huntsman in Snow White. The evil queen sends him to do her bidding, and he can't tear her heart out like he oh. wants to. I don't know yeah, anything about you. the Huntsman. I'm learning so much. Well, there you go. My wife's so smart. I played him once in a play in fourth grade. So it all goes back to that, does it, Chloe? Anyways. Let's not go analyze Chloe again. <laughs> Let's podcast. Brave, small Sansa Stark, who sang to Sandor a song of healing, of compassion, of mercy, whether he wanted it or not. Because that's what Sandor needed and wanted in that moment, whether he knew it or not. Sandor went to the bed of the only person who could provide him comfort in that city. But his first thought was that behavioral programming, right? That killing machine mode, bloodlust, I'm drunk, I just killed a bunch of shit and I'm scared as fuck, I'm gonna fuck this chick and kill her. And she talks him down from that ledge. It's interesting that we see in Tyrion 13, the whites of Sandor's eyes, right? Which is how we know he's afraid of fire, which Tyrion notes that the hound leaned on that notched and blood-streaked sword and looked at him with those wide white eyes. Because we see this again in Arya 6 in A Storm of Swords. Arya could see the whites of Sandra Clegane's eyes as he bowled his way forward again. It all comes down to the moment in that chapter. Please, Sandor Clegane rasped, cradling his arm. I'm burned. Help me. Someone help me. He was crying. Please. Arya looked at him in astonishment. He's crying like a little baby, she thought. Aww. Yeah, see? Uh I thought fuck you Eliana <laughs> fuck you you be nice to my baby boy because you've opened my mind so much in this as I've heard you talking about things I I had a revelation and like and I'm sure you already knew this but now I'm like realizing it like that Sandor's initial drunken inclination to like be violent and thinking that he was going to attack Sansa was because he felt scared and his masculinity was threatened because of the fire and the way like you know he was made to feel small the way that Gregor made him feel small and so what he thought he wanted to do was exert his strength to quote-unquote remind himself he was strong by doing that to Sansa but then he realized that like and, and it's also like because I'm thinking about Tyrion because he was in the chapter right before and because it's the Blackwater and he was and Sandor was talking about Tyrion like you know for a moment Sandor's trying to be like that monster you know as Tyrion says I will be the monster that you all think I am and then yeah as you said Sansa's like mercy yeah mercy 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 it's 
It's literally Beauty and the Beast. It's exactly that story of, you know, a beast going to savage the maid, savage the princess, and then being incapable of doing it. It's the huntsman going to tear out Snow White's heart. Is that what... I don't even know anything about the huntsman, turns out, in that In Snow White. In Snow White, the evil queen does a bunch of ploys, and she's like, I'll get her this time. And they all fail because Snow White somehow has dumb luck. It's the dwarves are looking out for her. She just, like doesn't listen or she is a little clever at some point and then the huntsman gets sent after her in the forest to go rip her heart out for the evil queen who is worried that a younger more beautiful queen will come to take everything she holds near because mm. mirror mirror on the wall oh. who's the fairest of them all and so she sends the huntsman after to get her heart out but of course snow white is so virginal and pure and sweet and etc and he just can't do it he can't bring himself to do it He looks at her and he throws down his sword and runs. He goes and he takes out, I want to say a boar's heart eh, or something, uh, and brings it back to the queen. And then later on, the queen finds out, oh, Sansa, I mean, Snow White is still alive. And yada, yada, yada. Some instinct made her lift her hand and cup his cheek with her fingers. The room was too dark for her to see him, but she could feel the stickiness of the blood and a wetness that was not blood. Little bird, he said once more, his voice raw and harsh as steel on stone. Then he rose from the bed. Sansa heard cloth ripping, followed by the softer sound of retreating footsteps. When she crawled out of bed long moments later, she was alone. She found his cloak on the floor, twisted up tight, the white wool stained by blood and fire. The sky outside was darker by then, with only a few pale green ghosts, dancing against the stars. A chill wind was blowing, banging the shutters. Sansa was cold. She shook out the torn cloak and huddled beneath it on the floor, shivering. So a couple notes about that passage. First, pale green ghosts dancing. Ah, like Renly, Mm -hmm. a pale green ghost dancing. Ah, I love that. Uh, As well as, thanks. I'm, I'm getting real good at this chapter, aren't I? Yeah. As well as... Sandor ripped off his cloak, his ticket out of the city. He ripped out his cloak. That was literally his ticket to leave. That was his ticket to ride. That was what he was going to get out. He was like, ah, they sent me out. Let me out of the city. He rips it off and he leaves it because he realizes he's no longer worthy of that cloak because he went to that chamber with this idea of what he was going to do. And he was talked down from it and he realized I should not have this cloak. I am no true night damn and Sansa wraps that cloak around her in almost like we've talked about a marriage symbolism of protection she takes that cloak his protection over her and wraps it over her just like she did in the throne room with no velvet had ever felt so fine it's it's just a full circle king's landing arc for them and anyways continue i'm good yeah, and you can uh, listen and hear more about that idea of the marriage cloak. I want to say that's Radio Westeros, right, Lady Gwyn? Uh, her Sansa cloak theory, there's a ton in there. There's Sandor's cloak, Sansa dyeing it and wearing it another time. Uh, there's so much involved. We'll leave a link below in our description for you guys. You really have to read it for yourself. For sure. It- I haven't read it. I, I only heard them talk about it. They talk about it, right? In, in, yeah, in the you Sandra need to cast. read it. This is literally, you need oh. to read it. I'm sending it to you after I this. Might have, I might have read it. I think, like... You probably glazed over it. Maybe, doesn't Cantus also talk about it as well? Or he, like, draws on that, too, I think. I don't know. I if you're wrong. a Sansa person, if you write Sansa meta or you read Sansa yeah. meta, you'll know it for sure. It's a classic, so... I knew it was Lady Gwyn's. I just thought that it was only in the cast. I didn't realize that there was an essay that went It with is it. on her WordPress, on her Lady Guinevere WordPress, and it's amazing. If you haven't had time, I highly recommend that yeah. piece. I recommend uh, a lot of her Arthurian stuff. She has a lot of Arthurian parallels with you know, Liana and Arthur Dane and other stuff. Uh, and she also has some really good stuff in general on the rebellion. It's that's the, the people that opened my eyes the most on rebellion things were Lady Gwyn and also believe it or not, King Littlefinger's Hall conspiracies, which we just talked about in Eddard 10 at not a cast that I was on last mm-hmm. week. Uh, that 
that theory, while I don't agree with everything, it opened my eyes. It it was yeah. like a moment where I read all the parts, all three of the parts, and I said, oh, shit, there's some stuff afoot. Like, if you read it, you're like, oh, that could be a thing. And it's interesting because the text allows for you to think that way. Uh, I don't know. It was very eye-opening. Very eye-opening. Yeah, I agree. I remember being really excited when I saw, when I read King Littlefinger's stuff. Though I also don't agree with all of it. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Bells begin to ring in the city, but they're different bells this time. They are not the death bells for the king. It is joyously tolling. Dantos now comes flying into her room. Like, where the fuck were you, dog? Like, weren't you supposed to be here when shit sucked? I don't know. He spins Sansa around and tells her that they have won. He tells her what has happened. It's confusing to follow at first because it is Dantos, which, you know, we know why. And... So, the river, and then Stannis was neck deep in the river, and then they took him from the rear. <laughs> Make it gay, you cowards. <laughs> I love that before this, I put in the notes, you bet Stannis is asshole, I'm going to talk about this. It's just a really, it's a queerly put phrase, for sure. I mean, that's like, I mean, don't they make things like this about the mudgate? It's, <laughs> it's really in there. Stannis is mudgate. Uh, <laughs> to be a knight again, to be a part of it, says Dantos. We see this whole idea played out in a couple of places. It goes back to this idea of playing at war, like Cat 6 in Clash of Kings. A mob of ragged boys raced by, screeching and flailing at each other with sticks. Why do boys so love to play at war? But it also comes back to the idea that being a knight and winning honor for your family and for your legacy, a seed in a garden that you never get to see, comes up. In the musical Hamilton that Eliana still has no clue about, Hamilton is an immigrant from the Caribbean, right, who comes wanting to fight to build a name for himself coming straight from the bottom. And General Washington says to him, fighting is easy, young man. Living is harder. See, what I think of when I'm thinking of green boys who have not yet been torn or playing at it is that scene in Mulan where they're all singing about a girl worth fighting for. Right? And they are all there to bring honor to their families. And then the song suddenly ends because they're just like, oh, war is actually this entire dead town and everyone's gone. Look at all these dead bodies. Uh, that they only show for like a split second. And then when you look back on the field later on, there are no bodies because it's Disney. But like, it's there for a Disney. moment. Yeah. It's the best. Yeah. Tons of good themes in that one, too. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not I'm not a fun person to watch Mulan and I'm always just like, but you guys look. Anyways. Do you remember this part that we're about to watch? Shut up. I'm like, guys, guys, look, this is about her character development. Look at the clouds. I do love that Dantos, when he's telling Sans about what happened, he's all, I heard it from Osni, who heard it from Osmond, and then Sir Balin showed up and he said it was true as well, which Dantos trusts the word of Balin Swan over the Kettle Blacks because the Kettle Blacks appeared out of nowhere. It reestablishes no one knows who they are or trusts them. Who is she? Who is she? Balin Swan is also, like, kind of a bad liar. So, I mean, I get it. Like, we saw in the Georgia chapters, he's not very good at it. He's incredibly uncomfortable when he's trying to lie, so. Yeah. The ashes turned uh, the armor of the opposing army, right, gray. And Dantos talks about how the banners must have been bright, though, and names off the Golden Roses, the Lion, the Marbron Tree, Rowan, the Huntsman. Oh, the Huntsman. And the Red Wine Grapes. Hmm. He talks about how they slice through Stannis's army like a tenderly smoked ham. Oh. How, you like that? Is he? <laughs> he doesn't actually say that. I say that. Uh, he talks about the power of the West and the South joined at last. He asks her if she could guess who was leading the vanguard, and Sansa, of course, hopefully thinks it could be Rob. Rob? It was too much to be hoped, but it was Lord Renly. Lord Renly in his green armor with the fires shimmering off his golden antlers. Lord Renly with his tall spear in his hand. They say he killed Sir Guyard Morgan himself in single combat and a dozen other great knights as well. It was Renly, it was Renly, it was Renly. Oh, the banners, darling Sansa. Oh, to be a knight. But it's not glorious, Dantos. Yeah, Dantos' reaction is really weird here. Like, 
it shows us that maybe the one who's really living in the songs isn't Sansa. Like, first of all, Renly being alive is fake news. Okay. We <laughs> all know <Truthers>. this. <laughs> Dantos, you idiot. Um, the one who really actually needs this Florian and Jonquil narrative is, in fact, Dantos, not Sansa. Because Sansa knows that Dantos is the one here who's romanticizing that idea of being, like, a knight or a soldier. Like, she's seen it in the guards who were stunned before when they were helping Lance, like, when they were supposed to be helping Lancel. They weren't doing shit. She's seen shitty knights and soldiers and a king that's fleeing his own battlefield and a guard that's looting the people he's supposed to be protecting. And, like, most recently in a very scared man who's finally leaving his master after all these years. And just as Renly, like, on the battlefield is false, Dantos, so too is the romanticizing of knighthood and that fighting, which, you know, we know from the other POVs that go with this one, Tyrion's, and the other one that began all of these uh, Davoses, where he's like, oh, it was the mouth of hell. <laughs> Absolutely. And we see a lot of this back with the Quentin chapters and with some of the Barristan chapters as well. I think we also have to have a chat about how it's not really a far stretch for her to think it was Rob leading the vanguard, given what she knows of her brother and what she thinks Dantos is paying attention to in their conversations, right? Like she's thinking, oh, you think you're going to tell me my brother? Like, that's why you're telling me all this. Like, she doesn't give a shit who the hell won the war. She's like, good, I'm alive, I guess. Like, now I'm still stuck here. Dantos doesn't care about that though he cares about her name her budding 12 year old titties gold for more booze right like oh sweetling sansa dantos led with their armor was gray with ash right like the start colors and even in the riot in Tyrion nine people cheered for rob a tumult of sound drowned his last words a rolling thunder of rage and fear and hatred that engulfed them from all sides bastard someone screamed at joffrey bastard monster other voices flung calls of whore and brotherfucker at the queen while Tyrion was pelted with shouts of freak and half-man. Mixed in with the abuse, he heard a few cries of justice and Rob, King Rob, the young wolf of Stannis and even Renly. But of course, we know who Renly was. It was Garland Tyrell, who will be dying in the winds of winter, so at poor Quentin, send tweet. This marks the beginning of the roses growing in King's Landing and sets off Sansa's next stage of growth. King's Landing. And of course, back to what you said about Dantos's romanticization, right? Especially of knighthood and especially after Sansa pulls her rose glasses off. Think of all the boys that died. I think no one puts it best like Septon Maribald does in A Feast for Crows. I think this is the perfect placement for this because we are, of course, talking about the man that inspired this speech, Sandor Clegane. For some, that one taste is enough to break them. Others go on for years until they lose count of all the battles they have fought in, but even a man who has survived a hundred fights can break in his hundred and first. Brothers watch their brothers die. Fathers lose their sons. Friends see their friends trying to hold their entrails in after they've been gutted by an axe. They see the lord who led them there cut down, and some other lord shouts they're his now. They take a wound, and when that's still half healed, they take another, there's never enough to eat. Their shoes fall to pieces from the marching. Their clothes are torn and rotting, and half of them are shitting in their breeches from drinking bad water. If they want new boots or a warmer cloak or maybe a rusted iron half-helm, they need to take them from a corpse. And before long, they're stealing from the living, too, from the small folk whose lands they're fighting in, men very like the men they used to be. They slaughter their sheep and steal their chickens, and from there it's a short step to carrying off their daughters, too. And one day, they look around and realize all their friends and kin are gone. They are fighting beside strangers beneath a banner that they hardly recognize. They don't know where they are or how to get back home, and the lord they're fighting for doesn't know their names, yet here he comes, shouting for them to form up to make a line with their spears and scythes and sharpened hoes to stand their ground. And the knights come down on them, faceless men clad in all steel, and the iron thunder of their charge seems to fill the world. And the man breaks. This is exactly what we just watched with Sandor. It's 
an illustration of where he was during the sack of King's Landing. George has confirmed Sandor was with the Lannisters during the sack. He was sacking King's Landing during the Greyjoy Rebellion. He was probably there. Here he is now, the Knight of the Blackwater, the Ironclad Knights, the Tyrells descending down, the Tyrells and the Lannisters descending on Stannis' men. In the end, men are just men. Whether they're in steel, whether they're not in steel, whether they're in spun and done, it, it, the man breaks. Yeah, that's this entire chapter from Sandor to the Lannister guard looting to Lancel. That's exactly that's what, what I was thinking, by the way, when you saw the looting. Like, I, this, this speech yes. is literally this Blackwater chapter. That's what this chapter is. It's all of Blackwater. We see it firsthand. Also... Because we were robbed of this speech in the show. If you would like to watch this speech performed, I would like to point you all, we will link it. I would like to point you all to a video of SCAD from the fantastic, wonderful Davos Fingers. Uh, that is also a reread. I mean, they are, they are an old school reread podcast. You know, they... They do not show. They do not show. They also have finally finished all of the five books and are now onto Dunkin' Egg. And they also just did an interview with Joe Buckley, who has a new podcast called Isle of Faces. I digress. Scad did a dramatic reenactment of this speech as Septon Maribald at Ice and Fire Con 2018. And amazing. You could hear a pin drop. It was the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Dude, he came out and it was like quiet and everyone was like, is he gonna, is he doing what I think he's gonna do? Is he doing what I think he's gonna do? And then he starts doing it and everyone's like, oh, it's the broken man speech, Scott's gonna do It was the so, literally yeah. no one moved. No one moved. It was just pin drop. Everybody was just, oh, it was amazing. It was the most amazing thing. You guys have to watch it. It, it was amazing. Ice and Fire kind of so fun for that kind of crap because like every once in a while someone just shows up and does something like that where you're just, what? What? It, that was amazing. There's nothing that was more amazing than that. It was amazing because he actually made it dramatic and meaningful. I mean, the, the speech itself is dramatic and meaningful. I've just like, you know. To hear it out loud like that. To and hear it out loud. With the emotion. And he has an acting yeah. background. He is a, a very well-learned actor. A well-learned actor. He's uh, been doing acting. <laughs> and been He's been involved with a lot of stage stuff. Yeah. He's... I, I would say, I'm sure he would argue, but I'd say he's an expert in his craft. You know, he knows what he's doing. And man, he knew what he was doing to all of us. We were in pain. Ill yeah, in pain. It, <laughs> it was, it was a good. I mean, he brought back to me like emotion and a thing that like. Has become you know, like, silly cynical because of about bookshelf it. stud. Yeah. It's not just bookshelf stud, but in large part because of <laughs> bookshelf stud. You know, my, my other comrade, Michael on Mr. Monthly. Uh, if you should all check him out, give him a follow. Uh, yeah. I mean, Scad just breathed life back into it. It was amazing. Uh, we will put the link in the description and make you guys watch it. Uh, 10 points to whatever house you're in if you watch it, because, man, it, it made me emotional. I mean, that speech yeah. always makes me emotional, and I kind of pickpocketed at... Some of the quotes that we did in there for that. I didn't do sure. the whole entire speech, obviously. It's because long. It is long. Hopefully when we get to that chapter in 17 million years, uh, we will get to do the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, you know, don't just do it for your house points. Do it for yourself. Honestly, do, you deserve it. You deserve it watching this video. All right. And hey, if you guys do want to come out to Ice and Fire Con next year... Uh, 2019 is the last weekend of April and you will get $5 off if you use the code DRUNK at checkout. It's my code for Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire History. So give yourself some money off and come out because it's a bunch of nerds that hang out. Eliana and I go, a bunch of our friends go. Uh, there's tons of people that come to this convention and it's just a place to be yourself among a sea of nerdy ASWA fans. But speaking of people coming out and hanging out, in a few days... Chloe and I will be in Jersey City. Together. Together. Not like Together. separate. Yeah, not just like in spirit, you know, with our fleshy meat bodies. Ew. We are <laughs> going to be together in meat space. And we're going to be at the Fire and Blood event where George R. R. Martin is speaking. 
We're actually going to be doing a live cast with the boys from Not A Cast and our good friend Joe Magician as well. So keep an eye out on social media. We will announce links and such when it's about to be a thing. Uh, and I'm sure if you're a patron of ours or if you follow us on social media, you'll probably see inklings of our Hangouts, Patreon. You guys will definitely probably get something special from Eliana and I. So keep an eye open next week for that. Hey, if you want to check out our Patreon and become a patron, we got $1 to whatever, whatever you want to do. If you don't, that's cool. You're still going to get these episodes for free. But check us out on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. See what we're about there. Keep up with our other, like, hijinks on the social medias. Is You can follow us on Girls Gone Canon at Twitter, where we're always up to hijinks. And you can tweet at us. You can also send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us on the many various platforms. You can find our podcast. You can find us. Give me a deep breath and a drum roll here, Eliana. <gasps> iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, and of course the lovely, wonderful hosting palace that we live in, which is podbean.com. We're like Jack and the Beanstalk. Oh, Jack and the Pod Beanstalk. Truly. Speaking of fairy tales. Oh. Anyway, thank you everyone for joining us. Yeah, this was an episode. Thanks for getting down while I cried about Sandra Clegane. I almost feel like I changed Eliana during this episode a little. I think she went into it a little more cynical than she was. I think something clicked for her and now she's like, wow, that's a sad dog. I think you sang your song of mercy to me. Gentle Font <laughs> of mercy. Anyway. You guys... I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor on Twitter, where I tweet some stuff, on Tumblr, where I write some stuff. And you can find me, Eliana, as Glass Table Girl on the Mason Monthly Podcast, on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, and Arithmetric on Twitter. Thanks so much, guys. Be sure to join in for our last Clash of Kings chapter at the end with Sansa 8 next week. And we'll see you on a live cast soon. What if we just like did the not a cast music here, like we sang it? It does sound like that. Uh. <laughs>